All right. We are continuing our study of Acts this week, the second volume in Luke's history of the growth and development of the gospel and of the church in the early years. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 1156, Acts chapter 1. Now, last week we took a little bit of time to get oriented, uh, to get some of the context and the overview of Acts, and I'm sure we're going to continue to touch on some of that as we work our way through the book and look at all of the different settings. Uh, But as we look at the specific details of these events, remember the overarching movement that Luke is detailing. It's not just a general history of the world, history of the church, whatever, but he's actually making a point. It's the history of the church along one specific pathway. From Jerusalem, the center of Old Testament faith, to Rome, the center of power, political power, in the ancient world. So he is showing the gospel expand from where it was centered in the Old Testament to the center of everything in the, in the Roman world, uh, in, in Rome there. Uh, Luke is showing the Roman mind how the message of the gospel, how the church itself is relevant even in Rome. Now hold that thought in your mind. As always, before I read God's Word, we need the Holy Spirit among us, humbling us, teaching us, instructing us, molding and shaping us into the image of Jesus. So if you're able now, would you please stand with me while I pray and then remain standing as I read from Acts chapter 1. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your Word, for the truth that you have broken into our world and given us that we might know you and how you work and who you are. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would speak to us through this word, that you would, by your Spirit, restrain our sin. Incline our hearts to you. Transform us. Be at work in us today, humbling us, teaching us to repent, and lifting us into your presence by your Spirit. Glorify your name, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we read this, your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts chapter 1. This is God's Word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. (coughs) Excuse me. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. 
Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoted, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. What is the single central event in Christianity? What is the one moment that transformed a loose collection of misfits following a wandering rabbi in the first century into the greatest force for change in world history? Imagine if I walked around Main Street on a Saturday asking that question. What sorts of responses do you think I would get? I imagine in this area, a fair number would talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, right? But even here, I suspect that would be a minority view. I would expect a lot of people, maybe even most people, to point to the incarnation itself, to Jesus' birth as a human. After all, if he hadn't been born, nothing else happens, nothing else matters. So the birth has to be the central event, right? Although I think that answer would have less to do with theology and more to do with the fact that we like Christmas more than we like those other holidays. Uh, So, yeah, but I I won't guess at that. Uh, Some would probably point, uh, rather than to his birth, they would point to his death on the cross. And they wouldn't be wrong necessarily. Jesus' death is absolutely vital. Without the death of Christ on the cross in my place and in your place, then we are required under God's law to be perfect. We must never sin, period, at all, ever. We could not even have the slightest taint of mixed motives in our actions. Even a good action touched slightly by a partially jealous motivation would be enough to condemn me to hell forever. If... Christ didn't pay the penalty in my place. His, so, obviously, his payment on the cross of that penalty, that must be the center of Christianity. That must be the single biggest event. Others, maybe perhaps more familiar with Paul's writings in the New Testament, might argue that it isn't the crucifixion that's the center of Christianity, but the resurrection. Indeed, Paul wrote to the Corinthians that if Christ is not raised from the dead, if we have hoped in Christ for this life only, then we of all men are most to be pitied. If he, that is, if he was crucified but has not risen again, then we have no hope. The resurrection that caps the crucifixion must be, therefore, the central event in Christianity. Ultimately, though, Though all these have some measure of the truth, none are the fullness of the truth because Christianity can't be narrowed to a single event. If Christ hadn't been made incarnate, been born like us yet without sin, then nothing else happens, right? Nothing else happens. Uh, If he hadn't been crucified, then there's no Christianity, only a quickly forgotten itinerant rabbi who had some decidedly odd ideas about God and his kingdom. And if he hadn't been raised from the dead, then death still reigns and we have no hope. But there's one more link in the chain. 
there's one more or maybe even two more events uh, that, that we often overlook the importance of. When I was in high school, uh, briefly in college, I performed in some stage plays, uh, musicals, some not musicals. Now, for actors in a play, the curtain call, to an extent, is actually part of the performance. You're still on stage, you're still in front of the audience, you still have your public face on, as it were. Um, you're still, to an extent, performing. Now, obviously, the story that you were telling in the play is done, but you're still on stage. You don't show the audience your frustration with having missed a line. You don't show the audience the squabbles between the different actors who don't actually really like each other all that much. Or you don't show the audience how uncomfortable the makeup and the costumes and the lights are. You don't show any of that stuff because that distract, de detracts from their enjoyment of the performance. Until you leave the theater in street clothes, the show, in some sense, is still going on. But that view is pretty much only held by those who are actually on stage performing. Most everybody else sees the curtain call, the bows, and the applause and whatever uh, as as the end. The story is told, the show is over, now it's time for the applause and the plaudits. In that vein, Jesus' ascension is often viewed as the curtain call of Jesus' life and ministry. He's done all his work, he's accomplished all that the Father sent him to accomplish, now he gets the chance to bow his way off stage to the cheers and the applause of an appreciative crowd. Now, I doubt anybody would actually say it that way, right? That's a little extreme in, in the way that that's spoken. But at the same time, that's the way we can sometimes fall into viewing the ascension. We're well aware of the other events in Jesus' life and ministry, but we tend to think of his ascension as after the end of his ministry, not really part of it, the curtain call. Here's the thing, in his two-volume account that we're, we're studying now of what Jesus did and taught, Luke alone recounts this one event twice, and he refers to it several other times. Now, as you know, we have four different accounts of the, the, the gospel uh, and what Jesus did, the earthly ministry of Jesus, and each of the gospel writers chooses events, recounts events that they think are most significant. And there's a lot of overlap, obviously, because they're all looking at the same life of Christ. There are a number of events that are told by two or three, sometimes all four, gospel writers. Interestingly, Luke is the only gospel author to include the ascension, but he includes it twice. And anything that a single author includes more than once, we need to really sit up and pay attention. He, see, he sees this as very important. First, the end of Luke's gospel, this, the ascension stands as the crowning climactic moment the event that Jesus truly, that shows that Jesus truly has done everything to please his Father and is now, in some sense, entering into his rest. It is, again, in a sense, it is a visible pointer to his glorification at the Father's right hand that the Lord took him up bodily into heaven. It is the logical place to end the story of Jesus' life. But then we get to volume two. To, to Acts. And in the very first sentence, Luke, Luke points to this event again that Jesus true, that, that, um, that begins to shift the reader's understanding of it from the crowning event of Jesus' earthly ministry to something else. 
I have recounted what Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up. And we talked a little bit about that last time, uh, that Luke clearly sees Acts as a continuation of what Jesus was doing and teaching. In Acts, the ascension shifts from the crowning event to a jumping-off point for everything that follows. And here's where it gets a little challenging, and I'm going to be a little provocative, but hear me out. The story of Christianity is not about Jesus. Is everybody awake now? The story of Christianity is not about Jesus. Let me explain. Christianity is the story of how God, Father, Son, and Spirit working together in perfect unity, how God worked to redeem a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. That story began before creation, continued in the time of the patriarchs, continued throughout what we call the Old Testament, the time of national Israel, reached in one sense a climax in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension, but continues to this day, continues as the triune God, continues to redeem a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. God's action is not contained in the earthly ministry of Jesus. The triune God was at work in the Old Testament preparing the world for the advent of the Son. The triune God was, is at work now in what is commonly called the church age, applying redemption to those whom the Father chose before the foundation of the world and for whom the Son died. The triune God will be at work in that great day when He comes again bodily and raises His people incorruptible and let it be soon. This is subtle, perhaps, but I think it's important. We typically think the view the action of Christianity as holy in the past. All that Jesus did and taught when he was here on earth, and that's when things were happening, and now we're just waiting. Jesus accomplished salvation, period. God did it, it's done. And that's true. All that is required for your salvation, Jesus finished. It is finished, period. But we can sometimes take that to mean that God is not working today. Since he already finished everything, that he does not have a purpose in our generation, that we're just sitting in the waiting room biding time until his return. And that is absolutely not true. But it's easy to slip into believing it without even recognizing that we have. Here's why this is important. If God's action is complete, if God's work is complete, and we are simply sitting in a cosmic waiting room, biding time until our appointment, then it makes no difference what you do today. Live your life however you please. Now, that may sound nice at first, in theory. Don't worry about rules or laws or morality. It doesn't matter. Do whatever, you, whatever makes you feel good is fine. Go do it. It's great. But there are two things that make that utterly terrifying, and they're related. First, if that's true for you, then it's true for everybody else, too. So just do what you want immediately transforms into the powerful do what they want at the expense of the less powerful. Nature, red, and tooth and claw writ large. What we want is not a free-for-all world. What we want is a free-for-me world. And all of y'all just got to put up with what I want. 
I want a world where there are laws and morals and, you know, all of those sorts of things, but which I'm in charge of. A world in which I'm God and can tilt the table so that it benefits me. That's what we really want. The second problem related to the first, Truman Capote once said, the problem with living outside the law is that you no longer have its protection. As much as it might sound nice not to worry about what God wants for me so that I can pay total attention to what I want for me, here's the reality. If God is not at work in the world, then you are entirely on your own. There is no help available when you get in over your head. Don't bother praying. His work is done. No matter how bad it gets for you, God is in the clubhouse icing his arm. His pitching's done for the day. This is nothing more or less than idolatry of self. When we examine that inclination closely, we find that it is quite simply, if maybe subtly, putting myself in God's place. Now, why do I make this point? Luke is writing this book, this volume, in some sense, so that we will read it in two directions. On the one hand, it is clearly the story of the founding of the church. How did this empire-spanning faith and it really did not take long for it to spread through the entire empire, how did this empire-spanning faith come into existence in so little time and from such humble beginnings? But on the other hand, he clearly wants us to read this all the way through both volumes as a book about Jesus. The founding of the church, the building of the church, all part of the continuing doing and working and teaching of Jesus. And because it is all about him, it is a book about our hope. We will see this, especially in the not really an ending ending of the book. Uh, Luke doesn't actually conclude the story. He just kind of stops with Paul in Rome. And I know it's, it'll be a little while, but when we get there to, to the end of the book, uh, that's intentional. It strongly implies that the story doesn't end, but it continues on beyond the Paul arriving in prison in Rome. It continues on beyond that into our day and even further. But we will also see this focus on the continuing work of Jesus here in the beginning. The end of the story was very much on the minds of the disciples. They, they were clearly thinking, we're now, we've reached the end. Jesus died and he's raised again. That's got to be, now's the time. We're finally going to get the kingdom established and restored to Israel. This is finally the point. They are constantly asking him, all throughout his ministry, they're constantly asking about the restoration of the kingdom. They ask, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come, in, when you come to reign? And, you know, that's positions of honor and power and uh, authority. We talked about when we studied Mark's gospel, they were clearly expecting Jesus to come with armies and take over and conquer and establish a empire of Judah instead of an empire of Rome in place of Rome and to do it in their lifetime. And so they're here after the resurrection at it still. To be fair to them, they're not any slower than we are. They have absolutely been through the ringer Jesus was arrested, and not only did he not resist, he refused to allow them to resist on his behalf. He let himself be killed, dashing their hopes entirely. And then, astounding literally everyone, 
He came back from the dead. Now, obviously, this was clearly a sign that it was time to establish the kingdom. He was dead. Now he's not. Clearly, it's time. We're going to get the whole world on board. We're going to have an army. It's going to be great. We're going to be the kingdom of Judah, and this is going to be what's going to happen, right? Obviously, it's time, Jesus. Are we there yet? I kept hearing that from, you know, when you take your kids on a road trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we? These are the disciples standing there with Jesus. Are we there yet? Is it time? I want to do it. Come on, let's go. They never once questioned whether that vision of world conquest was actually part of Jesus' plan. The disciples' belief about the work of the Messiah wasn't even conscious enough to be called an assumption. They just knew That's what the plan was. The only question is, when does it start, Lord? Is it now, or is it going to be in a couple of days? Because it's got to be soon. They knew it was the plan. The only question was timing. So here's the hard question. And it's a hard question for every follower of Jesus. Are you ready? What is it that you just know about God's plan? Where are you relating to Jesus and to the world on the basis of assumptions that you would like to be true? Where do you need to check your assumptions at the door so that you can see the real Christ? If He is God and we are not, and that's true, if He is God and we are not, then it is highly likely that He's doing some things that we don't expect that we haven't and maybe couldn't anticipate. We must be willing to check our assumptions over and over again against His Word, against His actions, against His Spirit, humbly submitting to Him, to His plan, even to His methods, so that we will see what He is actually doing in our lives. Instead of handing Him our agenda and saying, here you go, Lord, just sign the bottom and we'll all be good. John Calvin said of the question in verse 6 that there are as many errors in their thinking as there are words in the question, which is just a really impressive tally. They completely missed it. And his response points this out in verse 7. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In a sense, he tells them, this is need to know and you don't. And they should have known that already. Jesus has already told them that even he didn't know when the Father had intended for this to be. But then here's the thing. We get to verse 8, and he actually answers their question. It's not the answer they're expecting, and I'm sure they didn't understand it at the moment. Verse 8 is actually the answer. It is the plan for establishing the kingdom of God. This is how it's going to happen. Look at that verse, verse 8. He says, Um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the plan. This is how the kingdom of God will be established. It won't be done with armies. It won't be done with conquest. It will be done with the giving of the Spirit and the testimony of those who know Christ who witnessed all of it and will now go tell people about it. This is the plan for the establishment of the kingdom. This was the answer to their question, misguided though that question was. Filled with false assumptions though it was. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Well, no, but I am going to establish the true kingdom. One commentator put it this way. He said, Instead of a renewal which would form them as the restored Israel, waiting for God to become their king, instead they would experience a renewal which would form them as the restored humanity, celebrating the fact that God is the king of the whole world, knowing that as a reality inside their own selves. Instead of a restored Israel, they are a restored humanity. God's plan, God's purpose is so much larger than they can imagine. And then, to punctuate that prediction and to show them that it was absolutely the truth, the Father raised Jesus to glory. Jesus ascended and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, reigning in power. The disciples asked if Jesus would restore Israel's kingdom, and immediately God showed that Jesus is king of an expanded, exploded, enormously greater kingdom than any that the disciples could even have imagined. In one sense, he told them that it isn't for them to know when it will happen, but then he showed them the answer to the question right away, even while exploding their categories. In a way, this is the seminal moment. This is the establishment of the kingdom of God as Jesus ascends and sits down on the throne. Not merely for the Israelites, not merely for the benefit of one nation or one family, but for the whole world. God will no longer be contained in a single nation by a single polity. Now He reigns over the whole of creation. Yet rather than declaring hegemony and disbanding the kingdoms of men, whether despotic or democratic or otherwise, he begins to build the church, an institution, a group, a family, what have you, within all of the kingdoms of men, subverting their rule, subverting the rule of sin. We are called to be in the kingdoms of the world, to be in the nations of our birth or our choosing, And yet, we are not, first and foremost, we are not concerned with the political well-being of those nations. There's nothing wrong with paying attention to politics, right? It's fine. But it is, at best, a secondary priority. We are called to be concerned first and always with the reality of Christ's reign in the world. Always. Holly and I enjoy a particular genre of shows, shows about uh, espionage, spies, stories about agents, people working for the good guys but undercover with the bad guys. Uh, there's there's a, a trope in that type of show called a, a deep cover agent or a sleeper agent. Maybe you've heard of this. Uh, this is a person who is living in one place but as an agent of a foreign power and their job is simply to be present, to be ready to watch, sometimes to report back, but mostly just to be there, ready to go when needed. Now, the greatest danger for this type of agent or this type of spy, the greatest danger is not capture by the country that they're spying on. The greatest danger is assimilation. The greatest danger is that this spy will come to identify with the culture where he is living rather than the one that sent him into that culture and stop being a spy at all, that he will become his cover identity. This is the danger for Christians in the world. 
It is very easy to be distracted by the workaday hubbub, the daily grind, to be so immersed in the culture in which we live that we forget that we are not truly part of it. That we are called to work subversively to undermine the reign of sin and establish the reign of Christ. How do we think about ourselves? How do we understand our identity? Are you an agent doing the daily bits of life for the purpose of establishing God's kingdom and glory? Or have you stopped being an agent and are simply doing them because that's what we do here? Where does your allegiance lie? The only remedy for the danger of assimilation, the only remedy is to keep the end, the goal in mind. Why are you here? Verse 9, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up to heaven? Don't look at the past. Remember the past. It is vital. But don't focus on it as though all of God's action is in the past. This Jesus will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will come one day in glory to reign directly. It's coming. In that day, all sin will be eliminated and along with it, all the effects of the curse, death and disease and pain and privation and hurt will all be destroyed. And this is our great hope that Jesus will one day return and heal the world and us in it. And if we focus on that, on the action of the Holy Spirit in the world today, accomplishing that goal, working toward that end, if we hold that reality firmly in our minds, before our eyes, firmly in our hearts, then we will not be tempted to assimilate into the regular, everyday, mundane foolishness that is the culture around us. Whatever flavor that culture takes, Because we will see that our hope of glory, that our calling as subversive agents of the kingdom of God is simply higher and better. We have what they don't have and cannot have apart from Christ. If we hold that reality firmly in our minds and hearts, we will not be tempted to assimilate. We will remember the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus in our place, the resurrection of Jesus, and we remember the ascension of Jesus that points to his return, the establishment of all our hope. The full power and might and glory of the kingdom of God is built on the ascension of Jesus because this is when he sat down on the throne. That is what drives our lives. That is what allows us to hope even when mishaps happen, even when hard things happen in our lives. This is what drives our hope. Jesus Christ is seated on the throne today and always, period. And God will always fulfill His promises. He will come again in glory. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Father God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you that you are at work in the world today. We pray that you would incline our hearts to you, that you would help us to keep the end in view, the day of your return in view, that we would live our lives today captured by your kingdom and not distracted by the kingdoms of the world in which we live. 
Glorify your name through us and in us as you build your kingdom in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.